All right, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 31. I'm going to go through chapter 9, verse 1. And that is where we will stop. So Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But running or turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And, after, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that he who has ears to hear would hear. I pray, God, that we would respond. I pray, Lord, that you would help me communicate in a way that is helpful, in a way that is clear, in a way that is faithful to the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that this is what causes us to grow. It's what causes us to understand you better and to walk worthy of you. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've been following along, uh, going through the book of Mark, I said last week that this chapter, when we get to this spot, beginning with what we ended last week, where Jesus confesses Jesus as the Christ. You remember that last week? Jesus asked them the question, who do people say that I am? Like, well... Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, let me be more specific. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, as the spokesperson for all the disciples, he says, you are the Christ, the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the one we have been waiting for. That is what Peter said. If you look at it in Matthew, Jesus responds, and he doesn't, Mark gives us the abbreviated version, but Matthew gives us the longer version where Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You have received from God revelation of who I am. You did not achieve this revelation on your own. You didn't work hard enough. You weren't good enough and doggone it. It has nothing to do with who likes you. You were shown by my Father in heaven what's going on. So Peter has received supernatural revelation. You are the Christ. And then immediately, the transition 
in this whole book of Mark is happening right here. It's like this is the hinge that the door is swinging on. And from this point forward, we're looking at a beeline to the cross. And right here, Jesus changes what he's been teaching. What he's been teaching is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he's been preaching everywhere he's went. Now, I'm sure there's, there's still more of that in his ministry, but from here on, he is now teaching what we read first, that he must suffer and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, which is the Sanhedrin. He's going to be rejected. That means he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to be killed, and after that, rise from the dead three days later. Now, for some reason, this just flies over their heads. And it's going to keep flying over their heads. But he tells them, as you can see in verse 32, he said this plainly. Now, Jesus has done a lot of parables in his ministry, and the disciples, as we've seen, even with Mark that doesn't emphasize the teaching of Jesus as much, but we know from the other Gospels all along, the Sermon on the, on the Mount and the different parables that he's given, that they don't get it 99% of the time. They're just like, I don't, know what, I don't know what he means. I don't know what he means. The whole episode with the bread, they've had more parables about bread and their lack of understanding over and over. They, they don't get much. And that is not going to be much different from you and me. All the spiritual gurus that we have amongst us, you're not. <laughs> We're not. Um, we need daily bread from God to help us deal with that day's issues. That's another sermon. But it's, it's, it's important. But what I want us to see, and I, you can kind of see, is that what happened with Peter in being shown by the Father that Jesus is the Christ did not give him all the information that he needed. Because as soon as Jesus talks this way, Peter wants to rebuke him. Now, let me back up just a little bit. When you see Jesus use the phrase that the Son of Man must suffer, what, what Jesus is saying is, I am the Son of Man. That, that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Do you have that, Daryl? We can throw that up. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. This, this phrase that's used over 80 times uh, in, in the Gospels is Jesus' uh, favorite designation of himself. And the reason we think that he used this more often is that it was a way of telling everybody, I am the Messiah without conjuring up the images of a political leader. Instead, let's look at what it says uh, about the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. This is where this title is coming from. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It's interesting how that's split up. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. For Jesus to claim to be the Son of Man is to claim that. Now what's embedded in there, of course Daniel wrote this in Babylon, right? Daniel was not in Jerusalem. He was in a Gentile area. But for Daniel to write that has all this Gentile stuff listed in there. Nations, peoples, with an S on the end. Anytime the Bible uses the word peoples, it's talking about tribes, it's talking about nationalities, it's talking about all different types of people groups and languages. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So Jesus using the title Son of Man does allows him to say, I am the Messiah, but simultaneously not say, I'm not here yet to start conquering and a sword coming out of my mouth. I'm not here yet for that. I will be in the second coming. And see, this is, this is what is going on with Peter. This is what's going on with the disciples. This is what's going on with everybody looking forward to the Messiah is they are looking for this absolute political ruler and leader. And I know I've said this every week almost, but it's really important to understand when you read this, why did Peter rebuke Jesus? Because he had been shown by God the Father that this is the Messiah. So Peter already knows what the Messiah is, or he thinks he does. I don't know how many times we do that. Well, I already know how this works. This is how this works. So God shows him that Jesus is the Messiah, and Peter goes, that's great! We're going to have some bloodshed. We're going to have a political leader. Let, let me, uh, do you have, um, I'm skipping one, Daryl. Can you go to Amos chapter 9? This is for Rob. I thought of Rob because it's Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild um, rebuild it as in the days of old. Okay. Oh. Let me just get to it. Okay. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming. This is where we want to get to. Declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. That's the next verse. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Why are we reading Amos? Because this is a messianic passage that suggested to Israel that when the Messiah comes, and there's a lot more, but this is just one example, that when the Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. Everything's going to be restored. It's going to be dripping with wine, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And that is what is in the mind of every Jewish person 
in the first century looking forward to the Messiah's coming. They think that's what's going to happen now. Now, I agree that is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. What they didn't see were all the other prophecies that dealt with the Messiah. And I was listening to R.C. Sproul about this, and he used a really good example. He said, all the Old Testament passages about the Messiah, including this one out of Amos, weave a tapestry of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. But they left out for reasons unknown because they didn't comprehend. This is what Paul says is the mystery that was hidden that he had to suffer. Nobody really thought about it that way. That the Messiah would have to suffer. I'm going to read one more Old Testament passage. It's Isaiah 53. I'm actually going to start in 52. Verse 13. And this is speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were as astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He doesn't look like the king. I mean, it's right here. Now, do you know what advantage you and I have got? We already know the end of the movie. We already know the end of the story. How many of you read Harry Potter? Don't be afraid. Uh, okay, no, but just like three of us. Oh my gosh! How many of you watched Harry Potter? Oh man, this analogy is going to be di difficult. Well, I don't want to ruin it. But at the end of the movie, if you don't know what's coming, you you are really shocked at the end if you don't know what's coming, right? All my Harry Potter people, if you don't know Severus Snape and Dumbledore and all that, if you don't know what's coming, you you can only speculate. But once you've read it and you watch somebody that's never read it, read it, and hear them talk, you can tell they haven't got to the end yet. They haven't got to the part where it's like, oh no, what? That's what happens? They haven't got to that part yet. We are on the other end of the book looking back and saying, we already know what happened. But Peter and the Jewish people in the first century are not in that spot yet. They're looking forward to the Messiah. So when they read these passages, they're like us going, I don't know what it means. When you read the book of Revelation, how many of you know exactly what's going to happen? Is there anything going on in the news as we speak? Does it trigger all kinds of feelings, especially if you grew up in dispensational pre-tribulation rapture Appalachian Bible Belt? Of course it does. Russia. And as soon as you say Russia, and war, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you just know it's almost over. And I'm not making fun. I'm just saying that's the way we have been 
taught, but does anybody really know how it's going to work? No. We don't have the benefit of hindsight. When we get to heaven, we'll look back and say, can you believe the stuff we used to think? Can you believe the books we read and the movies we watched? Can you believe that? But we know better now. Isaiah 53 tells me, if you keep reading, uh, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. That's what Jesus just told them was going to have to happen to him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was not esteemed by the Jewish leaders at all. And by the end of his life, they are crying out, give us Barabbas. He was not esteemed as being anything other than maybe a clever wordsmith and a performer of tricks. And then verse 4 is really important. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, literally illnesses and disease. Yet we esteemed him, this is the way we viewed it, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The people are in essence saying, God did this to him. He was nothing. If he had been something, he wouldn't be there on that cross. But he was wounded for our transgressions. The transgressing of the law. The breaking of the law. The sin. That's what it means. The sinfulness of people. He was wounded. Though we did not esteem him, we didn't consider him anything. He did this. This is, this is in the Bible that Peter had. But the tapestry that was woven of what the Messiah was coming to do was only of conquest, of winning, of Amos where wine is dripping and we have a land flowing with milk and honey and established and the kingdom and the dominion has no end. That is, that is what they're looking forward to. The idea that this Isaiah 53 portion has to happen first didn't cross anybody's mind. It's really important, verse 8. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. The Lord has laid on him the Messiah, the Son of Man, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Your transgression of the law, your breaking of commandments that you cannot keep. You try and you fail. It goes on and on and on. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous. This is the gospel. The receiving of the righteousness of God that is in Christ is what we preach. It's what we teach that you receive a righteousness that is alien to you. It's not yours. You can't work hard enough to get to heaven. You can't help enough old ladies across the street to prove you're a good guy. You can't do enough because you are saturated in iniquity. You're born into it and then you do it and you like it and you love it. You do not want parted from your sin until God shows you who He is in His grace, in His mercy. And then you are convicted and you are cut to the heart and that leads to repentance. So Peter, we can go back to Mark. Just wanted you to get an idea. Why is Peter thinking the way he is? Peter is thinking in lines with Amos, chapter 9. In, a, in, in Israel, totally restored. He's thinking about a, a kingdom on the earth reestablished with a David-like figure anointed by God. Who knows? They may have thought he may have had Samson strength and rode around on a horse with a sword and just absolutely annihilate the armies of the Gentiles. What they didn't see yet was that he was the suffering servant. So when Jesus says that he must suffer many things and be rejected, and he said this plainly, that he must be killed and he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day, and he said this plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This rebuke means rebuke. It means he corrected him. Because in Peter's mind, Jesus is turning the apple cart over. He's, he is ruining what Peter's got in his mind. Because Peter knows God has shown him this is the Messiah, and yet his understanding of the Messiah was not perfect. There should be a whole lot of hope in that. You only get a little bit at a time from God. God will show you something, and you'll be like, oh, this is wonderful. The promises of His Word are great. And, and then there's this temptation. And then the devil is real tricky the way he works. He'll swoop right in and be like, that's right. You are so much more spiritual than these people sitting around you. It is, it is incredible how this works. You get this little moment, and you're like, oh, this is wonderful. And then in comes the devil swooping in. And what is it about you that wants to believe him? It's called pride. Uh, he doesn't really have to tempt very hard. Nobody has to tempt me to eat the ice cream that's in my freezer. There's no need for somebody to shove me into that. All I got to be told and be reminded is that it's there. I'll take care of the rest. Right? That's the way the devil works with sin. He's not like like dragging you against your will to do these horrible things. No, no, no you, you like it. You want to do it. He's just reminding you that it's available. That is pretty much how temptation works. Peter takes Jesus aside. Rebukes him. 
Jesus turns. I just picture this as Jesus and Peter. Peter pulling him aside like, Jesus, listen. Stop it. You are the Messiah. What do you, what do you mean? No. There's not, none of this dying and rejection stuff. We're going in there and kicking hind in. Taking names. That suits my personality, by the way, Jesus. That, that suits me just fine. Let's do it. Peter, Jesus over here, the disciples are here. I just You can see this. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, listening to this exchange, they know the scripture. They know what the promised Messiah is supposed to be. Jesus sees them all probably in agreement with Peter and says something really warm and squishy. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. I just don't ever want to hear Jesus say that to me directly. Peter had that privilege. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is not demon-possessed. Okay? That is not what this passage is telling us. But what it is telling us is that he's playing in to the same playbook of Satan, who, if you remember back in uh, earlier in Mark, that Satan tempted Jesus. And you remember how Satan tempted Jesus? Jesus, I'm going to give you a way to rule the world, which I know that's what you're here to do. But you're going to do it without any pain, without any suffering. All you got to do is worship me. There's this easy route. All you got to do is, is turn this uh, stone into bread. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. It'll be fine. That same selfish mindset that appeals to humans wanting the easy way out Nobody wants to suffer. Jesus recognizes, recognizes that same message in the mouth of his chief disciple, Peter. And that's why he says, get behind me, Satan. What you're saying right now is not influence from God. You do not have your mind set on God, but on the things of man. The things of man are our biggest problem because they're the easiest things for us to think about and pursue our own self, our own interest, our own stuff. The things of God are totally different because it's all about something else other than me. It's always about other people being more important and it's always about God being more important. But I will tell you that if all you hear in that is a life of miserable sacrifice, you are not hearing truly what it, what it means to follow Christ this way. But let me get to that at the end. Now, that was with his disciples. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, or if anyone would follow me, or if anyone would be my disciple, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, we've heard this phrase a million times. The way that the Roman crucifixion would work, which, by the way, this some people have said there's no way Jesus would, he, he just got done talking about um, he's going to die and be raised the third day, but he doesn't say he's going to be crucified. And then down here he mentions the cross. Well, some people think that Jesus is like Jesus and the two thieves, those are the only ones dying on the cross. No, the Romans put lots and lots of people on crosses. It was, it was intended to be humiliating and torturous, and it would cause, when you see somebody crucified, it is a great deterrent for you just to put your head down and do whatever you're told. Because it was agonizing. Most people live three, four days on the cross. You die of exposure. You die of dehydration. You primarily suffocated to death. And typically the way that it worked was they had a stake up outside of towns. In Jerusalem, it's the, uh, the place of the skull, Golgotha. And they have these stakes out there already in the ground. And then they have a cross beam. And this is probably the way, I know that messes up a lot of movies, but it's probably the way that it happened is the big cross beam, the Romans, after beating you, made you carry it, your own cross beam, to the cross so they could either nail you or tie you to it and let you just hang there until you were dead. It was horrific. It was horrific death. And Jesus... He knows he's going to die this way. Jesus tells us that if you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up that crossbeam and march not to a place of victory, not to a place of jubilee, march to the death of your life. March to the place where you'll be, be crucified. Jesus might as well have said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his electric chair, and follow me. This is really exciting stuff, isn't it? You can feel the weight of words like this. The disciples and the crowd probably would have had similar expressions that you do, which are kind of disgusted, kind of like, what kind of teacher are you? What are you saying? Well, he makes it real clear in the next verse, and I'm saying that with a smile. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I don't get it, Jesus. What do you mean? Whoever will try to save his life is going to be the one that loses it. In other words, the way he, if you look at what he's saying about denying yourself, the person that holds on to themselves and tries to figure out how to do it themselves, and is all concerned about themselves, and I can prove, and I can show, and I can work, and I can do it, 
that person is going to lose it because you can't do enough on your own accord to save your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever takes up this cross and follows me all the way to death for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is the emphasis here? I want you to put on your thinking cap. What is the emphasis? The emphasis is don't lose your life. And the way that you don't lose your life is by marching to your death. Okay. What? The way that you the way that you gain life is by picking up that crossbeam and following Jesus. By the way, it doesn't, when you hear people say, we all have our cross to bear, and what they mean is, I have really bad traffic in the morning on the way to work, and it makes me grumpy. That is not what this means. Or I have a really difficult mother-in-law. That is not what this means. Or I have a skin condition or an illness. That is not what this means. This is not about the inconveniences or the or those kind of difficulties. It is about the willingness to go all the way for Jesus in all circumstances at all times, always. This kind of verse exposes what we're most interested in and what we're most seeking after. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see that what God is actually interested in is, is not us having a happy and blessed existence in the 80 to 90 years we have here. Not that He doesn't bless us. Not that He doesn't give us joy indescribable because He does. But that is not the point. The point is eternity. The point is not to be fixated on what's happening here. The point is to belong to Christ forever. And the way that we do that is while we are here, we take up our cross and we follow Him. And we love not our lives unto death. And we consider others more important than ourselves because we've received the true life, which is what He's talking about, which is eternal life. Colossians says you have passed from death to life now. What Jesus is talking about, which they don't know yet, because He hasn't been crucified yet, is that in Him... Every Christian gets a new life right there inside. Eternal life is yours now as a Christian. What would it cost to purchase this? And Jesus says, what can a man give in return for his soul? There isn't a price you can pay. So what would it, what would it profit you to get the whole world to have everything that you ever wanted but the end of that is losing your soul. That is the worst possible exchange ever. You, you could have 
everything for 80 years. But compared to eternity, what is that worth? It is not worth anything. Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves, though, doesn't mean I'm going to wear sackcloth and ashes, quit my job, and just sit in the middle of a, a, a dirty floor somewhere, and that is, will prove that I'm denying myself. Actually, no, that's just another form of works where you're trying to, you're just trying to earn something by how serious you are. The reason I, the reason I think that way is because uh, he's actually telling you to save your life. He's actually telling you, here's how you save your life, by denying yourself. Self-denial is not the denial of the joy and the peace and the goodness and the kindness and the love that come from, those are fruits of the Spirit, that come from the Holy Spirit. It, it means that when I live this life of cross-bearing, I will follow Jesus to death, and I could be in the Ukraine right now, looking at Russians coming in and be filled with joy, even while I've got little kids in a house and don't know what's going to happen. There are Christians, and we're, there's stuff all over the internet of churches and Christians and people praying, and it is, it is horrifying what is happening. But those Christians that are in there, though afraid, though scared, whatever may be happening, whatever is going to come, they could die in a missile strike. Life cut short at 14 or 27 with children. They will gain heaven. They will forever be with Him. There will be zero regrets on their part. So the idea is don't lose your life. Don't lose it. Give it away to Jesus. Gain everlasting life. Gain everlasting life. That's the exchange you want. Give up this temporary life to gain eternal life. Then in this temporary life, I'm going to bear my cross and just be overflowing with joy knowing I've got eternal life. Does that make sense? The Christian is marked by joy not because of what they've got. Not because of the blessings, you're marked by joy because of whose you are and who you have come to know. Jesus. Jesus is the source of the joy. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is giving them a preview. Yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, all those passages in the Old Testament that point to the end, that point to the consummation of the kingdom, all of those things I am going to do. I'm just not doing those yet. So he tells them here, I don't know if they catch it. They catch it later. But he tells them, I am coming in the glory of my Father. But whoever's ashamed of me 
in the middle of this adulterous and sinful generation. This is a direct, direct sermon to the Jewish people. And he's calling them adulterous. We know what adultery is. It means you were with somebody that you are not married to. Adultery. The Jewish people are not serving God in a broad sense. They are an adulterous generation. And that is the moment Jesus came into their time. And he is calling his people to repentance. And he's saying that if you're ashamed of my words in the middle of this adulterous and sinful generation, that same person the Son of Man will also be ashamed of. Why would you be ashamed? Because I'd rather not suffer for being a Christian. Why would you be ashamed? Because I don't consider the things of God to be that important. In fact, I consider the things of this present world to be more important. And because the things of this world are more important, I really don't feel like suffering. I just would rather go to church so people think I'm a good person. I'd just rather go to church so I can say that I did because I live in a culture that says that it's important. And that's it. I don't want this to affect my Thursday afternoon. I don't want the teachings of Jesus to bother me when I lay my head down at night because I have lied and cheated and stolen. I don't want any of that. I just want the feel-good, warm, fuzzy when you sing Amazing Grace because that's what Grandma used to sing. That's all that I want, though. I want the warm fuzzy. I don't want anything beyond that. Certainly don't want to pick up a crossbeam, and I certainly don't want to have to die or suffer. But church, Jesus is telling us here, and in Philippians it tells us we've been granted to suffer for the sake of his name. The disciples, when they were persecuted, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer reproach for his name. We don't really suffer a whole lot, but Really, any of the suffering that any Christian does is a guarantee from Scripture. If you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to take up a cross that denies yourself. And somewhere along the line in that denying of yourself comes these lovely moments where God will show you your pride. And you realize how dependent on yourself you really are. You realize how much you rely on your own self. And those are actually great moments when you're convicted by the Holy Spirit to repent and say, I am sorry, Jesus, for thinking that I was going to do it on my own. That I, did it, I could do it without you. What makes suffering easy is knowing where you're headed. Don't be in allegiance with an adulterous and sinful generation that only wants the feel-good aspect of religiosity. Because Jesus says something really scary. If you're ashamed of him, don't want to talk about him, don't want to stand up for him, then when he comes back, he will be ashamed of you. In other words, depart from me. I never knew you. 
Here's where the some help can come in. This is not works. Where we check our heart is, if I have no desire to honor God, to love God, to serve God, if I have no desire at all, then I should be concerned. But when you hear sermons like this and you're concerned, you hear sermons like this and you're evaluating your own life, and you say, Lord, help me to not be somebody that's ashamed of you. That is a good thing. That is a good sign. These type of warning texts are meant to shake you up a little bit and say, where am, where am I at in my walk with God? So, you should ask yourself that. And then verse chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's what he ended this sermon with. That is a really unique, strange way for him to end. But he's telling them, either some of you are going to be alive on the day of Pentecost, which is true, seeing the kingdom of God come as the Holy Spirit was poured out on that day, or he's talking about the resurrection, or what makes the most sense is what we're going to talk about next week, is he's probably talking about the transfiguration, which comes up next, where he is revealed even more to three of the disciples. So let me back up just a little bit and, and say this. The encouragement from this text is God can show you things about who he is and you be totally wrong the very next day about what you think you know. So what this tells me about Peter is, tells me about us, that we are supposed to be growing in our relationship with God and our understanding of who God is. And like I said last week, if you've got somebody that may have a real basic understanding of Jesus, but they don't, man, there's a lot they're not getting yet. Don't give up on them and don't, don't just write them off because, because Peter was given a supernatural revelation and the next day was being rebuked as if he were Satan. So you can take some encouragement from that. He didn't have it all together. The other thing from this is, even though it seems very sobering, and it's fine that it's sobering, because it is sobering, taking up your cross, being told that Jesus is, the disciples are hearing this about him having to die, and then him saying, if you're going to follow me, your life is going to look like death too. But the way that that is understood is in the context of eternity. Our life here and whatever suffering we go through here works for us a far greater weight of glory there. Church, we, honest to goodness, are not living for now. We shouldn't be. We're living for then. Now, that doesn't mean that our heads wind up in the dirt and we are not aware of what's going on around us. Living for eternity means that I start trying to figure out how to serve and love and help everybody around me because that's what God commands us to do. 
Does this make sense? doesn't mean I'm a retreating. Some people hear that like, well, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. It's, it's the opposite of that. The fact that you are earthly minded is you're no heavenly good. Heavenly minded people are the most earthly good. Because if you're heavenly minded, you will be people minded first over your own self. The people who are ashamed, I believe, are the people that don't really belong to Christ. And the reason they're ashamed is because they don't really know Him. And Jesus is warning a nation like He is warning us this morning through these verses. Just because we grew up in a Christian country and there's a church on every corner, literally, here in Huntington, just because that's the case doesn't mean you know Him. Where is your life? Are you ashamed of him? You don't want to talk about it? You picked the wrong religion. C.S. Lewis said, I don't go to Christianity to get happy. A bottle of port would do that. That's basically bourbon. Christianity is not the religion you go to to get some kind of earthly happiness, but it is the source of ultimate and deep Joy, because it's the only place where the promise of eternal life exists. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand up. Last week was a 30-minute sermon. This week was not 30 minutes. Here is the good news of the gospel today. Christ came to save sinners. <laughs> this talk about following him is what happens after you become a Christian. Taking up the cross is not how you earn your way to heaven. Because already established, you can't. Taking up your cross is what happens after you've been born again. And you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you are empowered by His grace to live a righteous life. Because you can't live one on your own. So, this morning, if you don't know Him, the answer is not, okay, I've got to do more good things and help other people. The answer is not, i gotta, I got to get better. i got to do better. i got to do more. That. That is not the answer. The answer is you've got to come to the Savior who bore the transgressions of many, who took on Himself the sins of the world. You've got to come to Christ. That's where you get saved. Not in bearing the cross. You bear the cross as a result of being saved. So let's all bow our heads. I want to pray. If you don't know him this morning, I want you to just call on his name. Surrender your heart to him. There is not a formula. There's actually not a sinner's prayer in the Bible. It is Romans chapter 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For if you believe in your heart, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. 
For with the heart man believes, and with the mouth he confesses unto salvation. You are simply saying, I believe that you're God. I believe that Jesus died for my sin, and I believe that you are Lord, and I confess you as Lord. And that's it. That is all that it is. It's the heart crying out, saying, I cannot save myself. Save me, Lord. God does all that is necessary for salvation. So Lord, whether they're watching online or they're here this morning, I pray any person that calls on your name, we thank you. You will not turn them away. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. And for us who belong to you, Lord, that this message shakes us up a little bit, I pray that we would be people that are not ashamed, that we would be aware, soberly aware, of the cross that we bear. Going to our death, denying ourselves, following you. God, help us to see that that is your admonition to gain eternal life, to to live in the joy of knowing that we belong to you. And not walk away thinking we've got more stuff to prove. Because we can't prove anything. We simply trust in you. Lord, I pray this week we would shine like lights. I pray that we would be effective in our witness. And I pray, Lord, that the love of Christ would be in our talk, would be in the walk that we walk in front of others. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. March the 18th, we're going to have that movie. There'll probably be popcorn and some other stuff, but until then, enjoy.